Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, And on this scorching, sizzling week in Washington, our show today is all about survival. We'll bring you the first in a three-part series about local kids living with HIV. We'll find out how members of D.C.'s theater community are rallying to help colleagues in crisis. And we'll visit one of the country's last drive-in movie theaters and hear about the legal battle raging around that big silver screen. First, though, we'll head to Clark County, Virginia. Just turned right onto Cool Spring Road, and we are surrounded by corn. (laughs) Right in the shadow of the Blue Ridge Mountains, lots and lots of corn on the left side of the road, on the right side of the road. To a 1,200-acre Trappist monastery. Wow, this place, like, goes on forever. Known as Holy Cross Abbey. Okay. Here we are. Holy Cross was founded in 1950 in an elegant 18th century house. Since then, Trappist monks have lived in the house and the attached dormitory in accordance with the rule of St. Benedict, a religious tradition established in the 7th century, living quiet lives of renunciation, simplicity, and contemplation. The monastery grew rapidly in its first 20 years, and at its height, it was home to 60 monks. We're down to about 13 now, I think. So there's been quite an attrition. And as Brother Barnabas Brownsey points out, it isn't just the number of monks that's changed over the past 62 years. It's the age. The eldest monk, Brother Edward, is in his early 90s. Father Joseph, the youngest, is 55. So Brother Barnabas... I'm 78 years old. ...is just a little bit older than the average. And like several of his fellow monks, he admits he isn't in the best of health. He actually ran the monastery's fruitcake bakery for 15 years. It produces like 15,000 cakes annually. But then uh, one year, my understudy enrolled in the seminary, so he was not available for the fruitcake season. And at the end of the season, I was busted. I was burned out. Holy Cross's abbot, Father Robert, took note of the situation and called Barnabas into his office, where he promptly took him off fruitcake duty. I said, Father, if I was able, I'd jump across the desk and kiss you. (laughs) (laughs) So he was relieved, and uh, so was I. We're laughing here, sure, but here's the thing. Holy Cross's monks are getting older, and so are the men who've been joining the order. Most have already had another whole career, if not two or three. I mean, take Brother Barnabas. He'd been an engineer, an executive, and an English teacher, and had been married with kids. Brother Efren Sosa worked at a university in New York City, got licensed as a funeral director, and spent 20 years as a Capuchin Franciscan friar. At age 53, I decided, I want to do this. And so I came here. And they accepted me. These days, Brother Efren is the Abbey's vocation director and novice director. So he's in charge of recruiting new men and guiding beginning monks. Traditionally, is the vocation director also the novice? No, no, it's usually separate. But in our case, because we're so small right now, we multitask here. That's her middle names. (laughs) (laughs) Efren multitask (laughs) Sosa. Okay, once again, we laugh. And to be honest, all this laughing did kind of surprise me in a place devoted to a centuries-long tradition of quiet contemplation. But the thing is, while Brother Efren may hold two jobs, his hands aren't necessarily all that full. Are there any novices now? No, we don't have any. We have a few people that are interested. In fact, at the end of this month, we have two people that will be coming 
to investigate the life. Now, whether they'll choose to stay is anyone's guess. The most recent observer at Holy Cross to become a postulant, then a novice, then to take solemn vows, was Brother Efren himself. And I've been a monk here now for seven years. But while Holy Cross has a clear social problem, fewer potential monks and older current monks, the traditionally self-supporting abbey also has its share of financial issues. Because, let's face it, the market for fruitcake isn't exactly what it used to be. And since the monks are too old to run their decades-old beef cattle operation, they've been leasing their 800 acres of cow pasture and feed corn land at less than market rate. The monks also have a retreat house for visitors. That's where I stay during my visit. But the house barely brings in enough money to cover its own costs. And yet, when I ask Brother Efren and Brother Barnabas about all of this, they have the same basic response. This is God's work. That's in God's hands. This is not ours. If God wants us to be here... If God wants this monastery to be here... We'll be here. It will be here. If he doesn't, we'll go somewhere else. His will always comes through. God's will will be what will be, and it's up to us to accept it. But meanwhile, adds Brother Barnabas... We have to do the best we can with what we have. That's as simple as that. Which is why, in 2007, Holy Cross embarked on a five-year plan to make the monastery more sustainable. How are you? Good. Is that too long of a walk? That was lovely. Yeah. Lovely. And as the five years come to a close, the guy heading up the sustainability efforts is Chief Sustainability Officer Ed Leonard. So, what is this structure in which we are standing? This is our funeral chapel, but I think we need to call it something else. I'm not sure chapel is really the right word. Commemoration building. Whatever the term, the wood building is about the size of your average barn with open walls, kind of like a picnic shelter at a park. Only this one has a bell, a steeple, and a composting toilet. It's part of the new Cool Spring Natural Cemetery, a green burial ground for people of all faiths. Is there is there like a wooden casket? Is there no casket? If you'd like a wooden casket, that's perfectly fine, but you can also be buried in just a shroud. You know, what could be more green than laying a body in the ground and just letting the ground do what it's done for millions of years? But the Green Cemetery isn't the only way Holy Cross hopes to become more sustainable. It's placed 200 acres of land in a conservation easement, and it's transformed more than 100 acres of cattle pasture along the river into cropland. Cattle are very tough on the land, and the cattle would use the river to drink from. And of course, when the cattle would go into the river, they would do the things cattle do in rivers, and and that would all go to the Chesapeake Bay. The Abbey is cost-sharing the land with nearby Great Country Farms, whose workers have spent months planting a bevy of fruits and vegetables at Holy Cross, everything from tomatoes, zucchini, and squash. Here to our left, we have uh, an asparagus patch. To cucumbers, blueberries, and cantaloupe, which, incidentally, fresh cantaloupe, may very well be the most succulent cantaloupe I've ever tasted. I even have napkins. I don't need a napkin. I need a napkin. (laughs) Ed Leonard says he's confident these initiatives will get Holy Cross Abbey back on firm financial footing. And when I ask Brother Efren and Brother Barnabas how they feel... I'm curious to get your thoughts about that. Lessening the number of cattle, making more farming, the cemetery, the open-air chapel. What are your thoughts on all of these projects? They both second Ed's motion. It's all exciting for us because it's, it's for our future. We need something to sustain us in the future. I think we're going to have sufficient revenue to to continue to go on. But, Brother Barnabas hastens to add, much still depends on God's will. And now all we have to do is open uh, that God will choose younger men. By younger, you know, 
40s, 50s, and that they will come, they will hear the call and come. To see photos of Holy Cross Abbey, including the green cemetery, the farm, the 18th century house, the fruitcake bakery, even some chocolate-covered fruitcake, which the monks call fratters or fratters, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And speaking of the farm, we'll have more on the partnership with Great Country Farms next week as part of our Friends and Neighbors show. So stay tuned. Pray that we may be worthy of all. We turn now from the tranquility of the monastery to this place. You're hearing an increasingly rare sound right now. It's the whirring of a film at a drive-in theater. And the fight brewing at one particular drive-in in Baltimore County is the topic of our weekly transportation segment from A to B. Benji's is a third-generation family business that draws patrons from near and far. But Benji's is in trouble, at least according to its owner. It's been fighting a four-year battle with a nearby convenience store over lights that Benji's claims bleed onto the theater property, thereby distracting viewers. Martin DeCaro headed out to see how the next scene in this drama will unfold. Inside the projection room, high above a rolling grass field of 250 parked cars all facing a giant movie screen. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome. How about big and beautiful? Sure, D. Edward Vogel puts on a show. Yeah, I gotta go quick. Like a pinball, he bounces from one mighty projector to the other, empty reels under his arm, careening around his friend, Sam. Sam is a simplex aromatic. In fact, I don't think anybody has a Sam left. Sam is a giant platter wound with an entire film ready to be fed at 24 frames per second. Yes, Sams are rare. So are people like D. Edward Vogel, whose father designed and built his screen. The monolith, the 52 by 120 foot monolith. That's the biggest screen left in the United States of America with a perfect picture and continuously operating. Vogel tries to immerse moviegoers in nostalgia from the classic hits blaring from the speakers to the aroma of tubs of buttery popcorn sold at his refreshment stand. In this atmosphere, it's easy for him to remember the first time his dad led him into the projection room at nine years old. He still has a lot of kid left in him, but he says the past four years have taken the fun out of his life's work. In 2008, I did not take a 16-acre parcel of drive-in movie theater designed and built by a famous architectural engineer, a perfect example of roadside America. I did not take that and park it next to a brightly lit farm store. That's not what happened here. And the fact that I was here first apparently doesn't mean anything at all. And that, that, wrap your mind around that. His tone might surprise you since he just won his lawsuit. Did I? 
A jury awarded Vogel more than $800,000 so he can build an 800-foot-long fence to block the light coming from the Royal Farms Gasoline and Convenience Store on the other side of Four Lane Eastern Boulevard. But the jury did not award him damages. In fact, he has not lost business since Royal Farms opened in 2008. The business numbers are not down. They're always up. Is the bottom line? No. You're looking at a 56-year-old physical plant. Look, look what I haven't done in the last four years because I've been spending money on legal fees. Vogel's attorney, Ray McCurdy, convinced the jury that Royal Farms lights are a nuisance to the operation of the theater. He had a lighting expert testify at trial. Royal Farms signs were anywhere from 10 to 100 times brighter than the movie attempting to be projected onto the screen. Just like in the movies, there is more than one side to every great drama. Royal Farms has already filed a motion to have the jury award dismissed, and failing that, the company will appeal. John Kemp is Royal Farms' president. Our concern here is that we, Royal Farms, complied with the county regulations, and we built the store with zero light migration, and we have bent over backwards uh, trying to basically rectify any issues that have come up. His store has not been cited a single time by Baltimore County inspectors who were summoned to check out his lights dozens of times over the past four years. Kemp's attorney is Alan Abramowitz. Our experts testified that not a single foot candle of light makes it across Eastern Avenue, let alone past the businesses, past the fence, past the tree line. D. Edward led me around his property as Madagascar 3 played on his big screen, showing me where the lights were most visible. Sure, I could see them across the street, but are they distracting? Some moviegoers say yes. Anytime you got a bright light, it distracts you. It doesn't bother me. I'm here for the movies, and that's what it's all about for me. To be quite honest, I, didn't, I never even noticed it. It's actually a stoplight over there. It's more annoying than the farm store. <laughs> John Kemp was truly stunned when he lost in court, but Vogel isn't celebrating. He says he needs to build a second screen to stay profitable, but he won't do so until the lighting issue is resolved and the expected appeal is over. What other answer is there? I mean, I don't know. Uh, I would spend my last dime trying. Absolutely. Meantime, Benji's projectors rattle away. The show goes on. I'm Martin DeCaro. After the break, a new safety net for Washington-area theater pros. It could be medical expenses. It could be the tree fell on my house. It could be uh, I'm flooded. It could be any unforeseen emergency situation. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Our show today is all about survival, and in just a few minutes, we'll find out what the seemingly glamorous life of the stage is really like and hear about a new safety net that helps theater professionals in times of crisis. But first, an illness that's hit D.C. hard over the years, HIV-AIDS. Today, more than 14,000 D.C. residents live with HIV, and among those infected, perhaps none are as vulnerable as children 
and adolescents. In the first part of our series on children with HIV, special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza talks with two young people about living with the disease. Their names have been changed to protect their privacy. Kendra's childhood was a blur of medical appointments. Getting your blood drawn, having to get shots, getting sick by a drop of a dime. Her mother didn't tell her what was wrong with her, but made her take 10 pills a day. It, it was just hard because I would have to come in the house early and sit there and take medicine and everyone else is outside playing. Like, what? why me? <laughs> Kendra is 20 now, but she remembers when she was 13 and a doctor finally told her she was HIV positive. I got really scared and freaked out, and I was just crying hysterically. That was a wild day for me. Kendra had contracted the disease from her mother, who apologized and sat sobbing beside her. But even as Kendra found out she had something in common with her mother, she realized she was different from other family members who don't have HIV. I have a younger sibling and an older sibling who are perfectly normal. And I'm not saying I'm not normal. I'm saying I have to wake up and think about this every day. (laughs) To the outside world, Kendra is bubbly and outgoing. She doesn't tell anyone about her diagnosis and says her secret is like carrying a heavy weight in her heart. She hasn't even told her best friend. She would just look at me different and give me so much sympathy. And I wake up every day with a smile on my face because I'm waking up. When Kendra has an appointment, she just says she has to see her doctor and lets her friends assume what they want. They possibly think it's sickle cell or something like that because I always come back with band-aids on my arm. So they're like, oh, she's getting blood drawn. It's sickle cell. (laughs) Kendra watches her friends go out on dates. Some even have children. She misses having a boyfriend. You just really want to get to know a guy. You're at the age where you want to have sex, but you're scared. She remembers sitting through her ninth grade health class, listening to her teacher talk about HIV. And all those anonymous questions asking for specific answers, no one knew they came from her. It helped me learn how you can be a normal person and no one can ever know. So I thank God for that, that I I still look normal. (laughs) You look really stylish. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I do this to encourage myself. I try to make at least the outside appearance look nice, even if I'm not having a wonderful day. Kendra says the one place she can be herself is at the hospital. In the doctor's office? Yes. (laughs) Yes, because everybody who knows me here knows that I have a problem. I feel really free and open and can just talk. Kendra has a full-time job and is also a full-time student. She says she tries hard to remember all the blessings in her life, but there are times, like one day recently, when she feels God has forgotten her. I was in so much pain and I was so tired. And I just thought, like, when will it be over? That, that was the day I thought about death a lot. She's anxious about whether she might become like her mother, who after 25 years of living with HIV has, as Kendra puts it, more down than up days. She wonders whether she'll ever find a partner who will accept her diagnosis, and she always worries that someone might find out. But Kendra has also realized how strong she is. I have HIV. HIV doesn't have me. I was put here for a reason, and I haven't fully met that potential, so I'm going to keep striving for it. 
Kendra was born with HIV, but in most cases, the virus is transmitted sexually. And even though it's the same disease that needs the same medications and the same support, young people who acquire HIV sexually often feel the stigma even more strongly. Luke, who's 18 now, was 12 when he first had sex with a classmate. When he was 14, he saw a video about safe sex in school and decided to get tested. But when it came time to get the results... I talked to my friend and they told me, don't worry about it, you don't have it. So I did not go and get my results. Two years later, Luke donated blood and found out he was HIV positive. I walked out. My face was motionless. I was so confused. Luke says he knew unprotected sex put him at risk for HIV. He just didn't think it would happen to him. I was young. I was thinking, that's everyone else's problem, not mine. This soft-spoken teenager doesn't allow himself to think about his life before HIV, whom he may have infected before he learned of his diagnosis, or even who infected him. I just really have blocked that out of my head. I got to think forward. But in the early morning quiet, Luke admits he wishes he could rewind his life. Every day. Every day I wish I can live another life. Luke has told his two best friends about his diagnosis. With everyone else, he's quiet when the subject comes up. My friend the other day, I had a rash because, like, I was at the beach. The sand was irritating me. He was like, oh, you got eight. He's like, oh, you got cooties. And I didn't say anything. He hasn't told a single family member. His mother works two jobs, and he didn't want to upset her with the news. That's a pain that no parent wants to know. And if I was in her shoes, that's not the words I would want to hear from my child. Besides, Luke says, everyone has a secret they don't want anyone to know. This is his, and it's one that's easy to keep at home. My mom doesn't go to my room. I I do my own doctor's appointment. Medicaid pays for Luke's treatment and medicines, and he hides the paperwork. He's on one pill a day and doesn't have side effects, so nothing much has changed on a day-to-day basis. But he has changed as a person. Luke had plans for his future before his diagnosis. No more. I don't look forward to the rest of my life. I think I'm going to die young. He sees his life now not in terms of years, but in terms of fun. So he goes out all the time with his friends. He has protected sex, but doesn't tell the girls he's with that he's HIV positive. He's determined to be optimistic. (laughs) You can't just think of life like it's horrible, it's hard. I mean, it is hard. It is horrible. You fall down and you get right back up. You can't just sit there. (laughs) You have to get right back up. These young people are trying their best to keep getting back up. But part of the challenge they face that they can't control is whether their friends, their families and the outside world can start seeing past their illness. I'm Kavita Kadusa. So today's show is all about survival. And in this next story, we'll hear about a creative new way of promoting the survival of a rather specific group of Washingtonians, a group that is often quite literally in the spotlight or in the wings or the costume shop or the box office. We're talking about theater professionals, 
the folks who help keep the D.C. region's 80-some theaters surviving and thriving. And one of those professionals is this guy. My name is Ted Van Grietheisen. I'm an actor. Um, I have been one for longer than I care to remark at the moment, but my friends would know it's about 60 years. Now, during those 60 years, Ted's experienced his share of financial hardships, whether it was... I didn't have enough money to pay the rent. Or... My wife had some illness, or I did, and I was not insured. And when these hardships cropped up, Ted often turned to the Actors Fund, a nationwide organization providing financial and social services to professionals in the entertainment industry. Uh, They were very kind very thoughtful. They didn't make it difficult to get money or anything. So I never forgot that. Now, again, the Actors Fund is a national thing. It's headquartered in New York City, the country's most prolific theater town. And though Washington, D.C. is the second most prolific... We really just felt like there was nothing in Washington where it really supported the theatrical community when they ran into health problems or, you know, medical bills that they just were not, you know, expecting. This is Eric Schaefer, the artistic director of Signature Theater. And through the years, several of Schaefer's theater colleagues have run into such problems. When Jane Pesci Townsend, who was a local actress who unfortunately passed away from cancer, but when she was sick, she had all these bills. And one night we just threw up this big give it up for Jane at Signature here. And, you know, we raised over $15,000 to help her with those medical expenses. And we just thought, you know, wouldn't it be great to have that for the community? So not too long ago, Schaefer approached Linda Levy Grossman, the president and CEO of Theater Washington. That's the local organization dedicated to promoting Washington area theaters. And we got together for lunch and he shared the idea. And there wasn't even a pause. I said, for sure, absolutely, this is something that we should be doing and that we must be doing. Schaefer's brainstorm eventually grew into a fund called Taking Care of Our Own. Basically, someone in need will call our office or will be able to download the application online, put in what their request is, and then based on what funds are available, the advisory panel will decide on what the gift will be. And it is just that, she says, a gift. It's not a loan. There's no need to pay it back. And that gift isn't reserved for theater artists on the stage. When I say theater artists, I mean actors, and I mean designers, and I mean directors, and I mean the technicians, and all of the company members who contribute to putting that product on that stage. I should note, though, taking care of our own doesn't just help with medical needs. It could be something like, the tree fell on my house, or I'm flooded. Basically, something that's catastrophic, unprepared for, and, uh, you know, maybe falls just between periods of employment. Janet Griffin is artistic producer at the Folger Theater. She's also on Taking Care of Our Own's advisory panel. And she says the funny thing about theater artists is they often have this glamorous glow around them. But people don't think of the fact that they don't have a steady paycheck, basically. And they don't often have a steady place to live. Theater professionals are not just magical people on the stage. They, you know, they have to pay the electric bill just like everyone else. And they, you know, have accidents and need care. Taking care of our own's coffers have more than $11,000 so far, thanks to online contributions from the community and to the more than two dozen theaters participating in the Bucket Brigade, where bucket-bearing actors solicit donations after the show. We did a whole week at Taming of the Shrew, and the actors were so excited 
excited about participating in standing by the door. And there was a little bit of a competition as to which one raised the most money that night. So it was a very positive experience. And she hopes taking care of our own's next fundraising push will be equally positive. On August 20th at Signature Theater, Eric Schaefer is directing a variety show. That we're calling the Summer Hummer. And it'll be a song and dance extravaganza modeled after Broadway Bears. That's New York's annual burlesque benefit for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. Schaefer describes DC's version as a bit, how shall we say, risque? You know, some people will be stripping for money so that actually people come and just throw money at the stage. So it's going to be a fun night, but hopefully what it's going to do is all of a sudden just kick off the program and really raise awareness. Because that's really what it's all about, says Theatre Washington's Linda Levy-Grossman, raising awareness of Washington's theatre artists. And not just what they need, but what they give. The work that they put on our stages lights up our town. It provides a level of human connectivity that we don't have in any other way. And after 60-some years of doing his part to provide that connectivity, actor Ted Van Griethuysen says he's thrilled D.C. is starting a sort of actor's fund of its own. Every time we do a show, for the opening night, I make a contribution to the actor's fund. And in some ways, I don't quite know why it means so much to me, except that it was there when I needed it. Of course, now that taking care of our own will be there when folks need it here in D.C., perhaps a brand new opening night tradition will be born. Actually, we'll have a chance to see whether Ted starts that new tradition very soon. He'll be portraying the King of France in All's Well That Ends Well as part of Shakespeare Theatre Company's annual free-for-all from August 23rd through September 5th. The Summer Hummer will be held August 20th at Signature Theatre. We have more information about the event and taking care of our own on our website, metroconnection.org. strolled through D.C.'s Shaw neighborhood, you may have noticed a big brick building sporting the words Wonder Bread and Hostess Cake. The old Wonder Bread factory has been in pretty iffy condition for years, but it's survived and may soon thrive thanks to its first tenant in more than two decades. Jonathan Wilson has more. It's almost as if the Wonder Bread building has finally caught the revitalization bug that's been making its way around the block. Behind the old factory is the newly restored Howard Theater, and next to it, a gleaming modern structure soon to be the new home of the United Negro College Fund. The Wonder Bread building doesn't exactly look good yet. A month ago, Douglas Development started removing its rotted innards. But now it's pretty easy to see what Douglas Vice President and Head of Construction Paul Milstein sees, that the old factory's skeleton is still, well, wonderful. It's four stories, it's brick, it's industrial. We're going to renovate everything we do. We'll, we'll maintain the industrial character from open bar joists. We're not doing concrete decks. You know, we have, Every detail is put so that we'll have a true industrial loft office, which really makes this building very different. The restoration is scheduled to finish up in the spring of next year, with the building's first tenant, a furniture design company, moving in then as well. Milstein watches as crews tear apart parts of the building that need replacing. This building was built, I think, in five stages. Um, Some of them don't meet the structural 
uh, loads of a, of a modern building and don't meet code. So we're taking some steel out. We're taking some concrete out. We're making way for new structure where we need new structure. So these guys are doing all the necessary demolition to get us ready for the new construction. Last year, the D.C. Preservation League wanted to use the building for an anniversary party. Rebecca Miller, DCPL's executive director, who happens to live in Shaw, says simply making the building safe to enter took some work. The floorboards were up six feet tall off the ground just because they'd buckled up and things like that. Um, a lot of rotted wood, things like that. Um, there was several feet of water in the basement. So all of this had to be kind of um, rectified before anybody could really access it. Though Douglas has owned the building since 1997, Paul Milstein admits even he was surprised at how run down the inside of the building had become. Major sections of the roof were gone, open to the daylight, which had caused this growth on the inside of the wood. You know, plants can grow in a wood floor. It's amazing. So it was in pretty bad shape. Continental Baking Company, which produces Wonder Bread and Hostess products, left the building in 1988. The company first bought the property back in 1936. But Continental wasn't the first baking company to live here. The factory was originally known as Dorch's White Cross Bakery, a bit of trivia hinted at by the two white crosses that still sit at the top of the building's S Street facade. Douglas Development is preserving that front facade, complete with the Wonder Bread lettering so familiar to local residents, along with the massive building's entire east and west walls. It's of course, much more expensive than building new facades. But again, when you're, the final product is so, so, so far superior when you're restoring what was originally there that it's well worth it. Milstein says the wait has been worth it as well. He's seen several false starts in the redevelopment of the Wonder Bread property. Initially, we, we proposed this to be an office building years ago, um, but that was before the building to, that's being built beside it. It was before O Street Market. It was before a lot of things. And we had tours, and people thought we were crazy. Milstein says tenants just couldn't see themselves in Shaw and certainly couldn't see themselves in a run-down bread factory. A few years later, the company tried to redevelop the building into residential units, but that fell through as well. It's taken the transformation of the neighborhood around the building to rekindle interest. Rebecca Miller says finding a new use for the Wonder Bread building while preserving its appearance will help keep the area around Shaw Metro Station connected to the city's deeper history. It's important to keep these buildings because it gives you a sense of place, it gives you an identity to the neighborhood, and you can really sense the changes in the neighborhood because you'll have buildings of different eras as you walk down the street, and it really kind of gives you this feeling of understanding your city instead of just having everything new or everything old. And so it appears the Wonder Bread factory's time has finally come. Again, I'm Jonathan Wilson. To see pictures of the Wonder Bread building, its historic facade, and all the work being done to make it habitable again, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Up next, the photographer's mission to capture the horses carrying caskets at Arlington National Cemetery. If you come too close, they'll just let you know right away. And if, but if you stay too far off, it doesn't become a portrait, it stays a picture. It's coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we are talking about survival. In this next story, we'll hear about what it takes to survive in the animal kingdom. But we're going to do it in a rather unexpected place. Environment reporter Sabri Benashore takes us there. 
past that giant elephant in the Smithsonian's Natural History Museum and the hordes of visitors, deep in the bowels of the museum, there are white hallways, long white hallways, full of white cabinets. Chris Elgin starts opening them up. This is actually more or less where our Division of Mammals collection starts. Helgen is curator of the Mammal Division for the Smithsonian. He pulls out a stuffed platypus. You can see the fur is pretty... Um, can I touch it? Yeah, back of your hand there. It's kind of a waterproof uh, fur, very thick, uh, very oily. He also has preserved bats. Big black shaggy bats. Mice. Possums. Voles. Rats, squirrels. White-toothed shrews from Africa. There are 600,000 specimens here, collected over 200 years. We've got skins, we have skulls and bones, we have a few things in jars. And hidden among these shelves and in these cabinets are species that nobody even knew existed. So this is a relative of the raccoon. You can see this pelt. You can feel it if you want to. It's nice and and soft. It's very soft. Kind of a rich golden red auburn color. This animal is found only in Andean rainforests, what we call cloud forests, high up in the elevational gradient on, on the Andes. This is from Colombia and Ecuador. And... We're calling it the mountain olingo. It doesn't look like a raccoon. It looks more like a little, uh, like a cross between a koala and a flying squirrel or something. Right. This one was collected almost 100 years ago, in 1919. But whoever collected it just trapped a bunch of creatures and figured, yeah, they look alike. I'm sure they're all the same, raccoon, cat, whatever. Turns out there are two mountain olingos that live in the region. They're very, very different. The closer you look at the fur color, the size, the, 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 the skull, the teeth... You can tell them apart easily, but not if you just see one running through the tree. When Helgen went down to the Andes, he found mountain lingos scampering around through the trees. They're still there. Anytime I find something new in a collection, it's a euphoric moment. I, I have to explain that. You just you pull out a cabinet, and it might be something that's been here for 100 years, and you sort of feel, maybe I'm the first person who's really realized what's going on here. Helgen has found 25 new species this way, including some that have already gone extinct. Sometimes it takes DNA analysis to figure out whether a creature is really a different species. You know, and when you have two species that basically look the same, why are they different species if they appear so similar? I think one of the ways to think about it is, you know, what what do they look like to each other? I mean, when, when I'm here as an observer in the museum, I have to only use my senses, especially my kind of visual powers, to try to tell these things apart. But for these rats... Their sight is not their most important sense. Hearing is very important. They may make different noises. And probably most important of all is the sense of smell. And so in their world, they probably think they have nothing in common and look nothing like, you know, like each other. Helgen's search is all about the basic questions of biology. What is out there? Where is it? What are we losing? What the world is, what the world around us really is, is just the sum total of, of all the life we see. And, you know, mammals is just a drop in that bucket, all the different kinds of mammals in the world, but that's my drop to look at. And I, until my dying day, am going to be investigating these questions. These are the basic questions that make our planet tick, and I want to know those answers. One perk of this work is that when Helgen does come across an organism that's new to science, he gets to name it, like whatever he wants. Do you have, like, 100 best friends who are, like, coming up to you and, like, trying to lobby for names? Well, that's the, that's the issue with mammal names. You know, some people are desperate to have something named after them, but others come and they look and they say, ooh, we've got rats, we've got bats. I'm not sure if I want one of those to bear my name for all time. So, got it. 
Okay. All right. Well, let me know when there's going to be a platypus sabri. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll let you know. And with only a tiny, tiny fraction of the species in the Natural History Museum's collection documented so far, there's a really good chance that there are all sorts of other animals, creatures that look like a platypus or a mountain lingo or maybe something even more unusual, just waiting to be discovered and named. After me, I'm Sabri Beneshore. To see photos of some of the species found deep down in the bowels of the Natural History Museum, head to our website, metroconnection.org. Our next story is also about animals, specifically horses the horses that work at Arlington National Cemetery. Roughly 21 funerals take place each day at Arlington, and the majority are simple graveside burials. But for those who have earned full honors funerals, meaning sergeants, majors, officers, U.S. presidents, and soldiers killed in action, the casket is brought to the grave by a team of horses pulling an antique wagon called a caisson. These caisson horses are the subject of a new exhibit by Dutch photographer Charlotte Dumas at the Corcoran Gallery of Art. Emily Friedman joined Dumas at the stables at Fort Meyer, the U.S. Army post adjacent to Arlington National Cemetery, and brings us this story. We're walking around Fort Meyer, and Dumas explains this is the first time she's seen the horses in broad daylight. She shot her series at night, around 2 or 3 in the morning, though the horses look a little different than she remembers them. She walks through the stables like she's visiting old friends. Do you know every single one of the horses? Um, yeah, more or less. She peers over stall doors and between wooden slats, identifying each horse. Our Sergeant Amos here, they're like, they're huge. Some of the horses are just heading back from their most recent mission, That's the lingo around here for funeral. Our tour guide, Army Specialist Luke Wentworth, leads us in the direction of the clomping. Well, we'll go down this way because they're going to be coming down this way. We stand silently as the soldiers unhitch the caisson and take off the horses' saddles. The horses seem sad, although I couldn't quite tell you whether the horse is feeling sad or I'm feeling sadness for the horse. Dumas says that question is what drives her work. They do think that portraits of animals specifically give room for a reflection of one's own emotions. It feels possible that if you look at one of these photographs long enough, the horse might somehow tell you something about life and death. Dumas photographs the horses in a way that makes them seem wise. She shoots from the horse's eye level, from as close as she could get. If you come too close, they'll just let you know right away. But if you stay too far off, it doesn't become a portrait, it stays a picture. Night after night, she sat with her tripod at the edge of the horse's stall, with no extra lights, no zoom lenses. I observe them a lot of the time. I just sit there and wait and look, and then sometimes I take a picture. Dumas' photos show us a horse after the day's work is done, resting in its stall, Its white hair glows against the shadowy background. Low light in the stables creates a dreaminess that makes you wonder whether these are photographs at all. These portraits resemble the paintings of Dutch artists like Rembrandt and Vermeer, says the exhibit's curator, Paul Roth. At the same time, he says, 
These portraits buck a long-standing tradition in fine art. You know, one of the things that I was first taught when I learned about photography is that you should never photograph an animal because it would invite people to have a preconceived notion, usually typically a romantic notion, that we all experience daily when we see viral videos of cats. In the Corcoran's rotunda gallery, assistants are arranging Dumas' photographs, deciding what will hang where. All around us are photos of horses, but none of them beg to be used as an adorable screensaver. Charlotte is really interested in getting beyond that. Their whole working life, eight funerals a day, year-round, is about carrying soldiers to their graves and doing so in a way that recognizes the importance and the value of the sacrifice that they've made. It's a really powerful thing, and so it does seem almost as, as though they are accompanying spirits. That's why, Roth says, they named the exhibit Anima, Latin for soul or spirit. Back in the stables, Dumas says the horses at Arlington aren't simply carrying the casket to the gravesite. For the wives and husbands and children mourning, the horse's presence, she says, means so much more. I think we need them to help us to, to understand what's going on. In a way, they are the witnesses of our existence. Fewer and fewer people interact with animals on a daily basis, Charlotte Dumas says. With her photographs, she tries to get viewers to pause, look an animal in the eye, and question how much we really know about animals in our lives. I'm Emily Friedman. You can see Charlotte Dumas' photographs of the burial horses at the Corcoran Gallery of Art through the end of October. And a quick tip, if you visit the museum any Saturday before Labor Day, you get in for free. Now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Maywood in Arlington, Virginia, and the Chinatown Gallery Place area of Northwest D.C. I'm Bob Welsh, and I'm 65 years old, retired, and I live here in Maywood, which is a neighborhood in northern Arlington, Virginia, just across the river from Georgetown. Maywood is a neighborhood that's coming on 100 years old now, so the houses are old frame houses, two-story Victorian frame houses, a lot of bungalows, a few houses that were built in the 1950s, some newer houses that came in after World War II. Uh, But for the most part, the houses that you see here are look exactly like they were when they were built 100 years ago. First homes were built here just about the same time as the trolley was uh, opened up. The trolley line came from Roslyn, Outley Highway, and then at Alderman Drive to Falls Church and Great Falls. Because of that, it allowed people to live out here and get to work in Washington easily. People who live in Maywood are extremely friendly. They're extremely helpful. During the power outage, we had back and forth people, you know, asking for can we have ice? Does anybody have a phone cord I can use? It was a true feeling of solidarity. So I think that you know the main thing I like about Maywood is the is this sense of small town feeling that you know your neighbor. They they're watching out for you. They trust you to take care of them.
My name is Ryan Merkel, and I have lived in Chinatown for four years. I think Chinatown and Gallery Place really revolve around the Verizon Center and the Gallery Place Chinatown Metro and the 7th Street Corridor, maybe from E Street up to K Street and from 4th or 5th over to 9th or 10th. When I first moved here, for the first week, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, it's so loud. You get used to it pretty quickly, and it's just part of the character of the area, I suppose, and, and that's the price you have to pay for being right in the middle of everything. But it is strange sometimes when you walk out your door and suddenly you're in the middle of a throng of tourists. I love the fact that you can walk pretty much anywhere, you know, after work or something like that. I'm a big theater fan. The Shakespeare Theater is right down the street. The National Portrait Gallery is just such a fantastic museum. You know, I, I look out my window and I can see it. It would be impossible to be bored, actually. And there's a movie theater right next door. There's a bowling alley right next door. The, the opening of the Verizon Center and the remodeling of the Portrait Gallery really revitalized the neighborhood tremendously. And it's really hard for me to imagine this neighborhood not being loud and vivacious. We heard from Bob Welsh in Maywood and Ryan Merkel in Chinatown Gallery Place. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Sabri Benashore, Emily Friedman, Martin DeCaro, Jonathan Wilson, and Kavitha Cardoza. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Jessica Officer and Rafaela Benin. Jonna McCone, Lauren Landau, Rafaela Benin, and Jessica Officer produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, metroconnection.org. Also on our website, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To listen to our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. Next week's show is all about friends and neighbors. And since we're all friends and neighbors here, we hope you'll join us. We'll find out how people of different faiths are sharing the same worship space, often with surprising results. We'll continue our series on the monks of Holy Cross Abbey. And we'll check out a basketball league that's brought one D.C. neighborhood together like nothing else. When we lose, we lose together. When we win, we win together. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.